0: Pilots Playing Tales Die Nachthexen It was the spring of 1943 at the height of World War II. Two pilots of the Soviet Air Force were flying their fighters over a Soviet railway junction. Their patrol was routine until the pilots realized that they were over the target for a large formation of German bombers, 42 of them. Diving down into the formation, they attacked. Dodging and weaving around, they managed to bring two Nazi aircraft down before the wing of one fighter was blown off by defensive fire from the Germans. Bailing out, the pilot drifted down into a field whilst the Yak-1 spiralled into the ground. Workers in the field who had watched the skirmish ran over to help the pilot offering a drink of vodka, and they were surprised when the offer was refused. No brave fighting man would ever refuse a glass of vodka, surely. The pilot would later recall, nobody could understand why the brave lad who had taken on a Nazi squadron wouldn't drink vodka. The reason why the brave lad had refused the alcohol was that she wasn't a lad at all. This young lady pilot was Tamara Pamyatunk, a member of the Soviet Air Force's 586th Night Bomber Regiment, their most highly decorated female unit. Although the Soviet armed forces initially banned women from fighting, it was on the 8th of October 1941 that the Soviet premier, Joseph Stalin, issued an order to deploy three women's air force units, primarily made up from female volunteers in their late teens and early 20s into active duty. Facing combat facilitated and ushered in a reluctant acceptance of women in the military based more upon practicality and necessity than for equality. Every able-bodied Soviet was expected to fight to defend their motherland. The world witnessed how these loyal Soviet women served on the front lines and excelled in specialised duties that were Formerly inaccessible. The famed all-female Soviet fighter pilot regiments exemplified this. Approximately 400,000 women fought for the Red Army on the front lines of the 800,000 who volunteered for service during World War II. Combat training, including instruction in mortars, light and heavy machine guns or automatic rifles, was given to a third of the women, and another 300,000 served in the anti-aircraft units and performed all functions in the batteries, including firing the guns. Gender did not limit these women from serving their country and performing their loyal duty. The 586th Regiment that Tamara tank belonged to was a remarkable unit. It was one of three specialist aviation regiments founded by Marina Reskova at the start of the war after she managed to convince Stalin that all female units were not only possible but would produce good results. Twenty-five women who graduated from their Yak-1 training course on the 9th of December 1941 became the founder pilots. The unit was very successful and they produced aces. Lydia Litviak was the first female fighter pilot to shoot down an enemy aircraft and the first of two fighter aces that the women's unit produced. Flying a Yak-1 on the 13th of September, she was protecting Stalingrad when she attacked a formation of Junker's Ju-88s, one of which she shot down. As the German aircraft spiralled down in flames, she spotted her unit commander, her ISA Believer, in trouble with a BF-109 on her tail. She closed on the fighter and with a few well-aimed bursts shot that aircraft down as well. The Bf 109 Gustav was piloted by a decorated pilot from the 4th Air Fleet, the 11th Victory Ace Staff Sergeant Owen Meyer of the 2nd Staffel of Jägerschwader 5-3. Meyer parachuted down from his aircraft and was captured by Soviet troops. He asked to see the Russian Ace who had shot him down, but when he was taken to Litvyak, He thought he was being made the butt of a Soviet joke. It was not until she described to him each move of the fight in perfect detail that he knew he had been shot down by a woman pilot. She flew 66 combat missions and accounted for at least 10 enemy aircraft before being shot down herself. On August 1st, 1943, Litviak did not come back to her base at Krasny Lutsch. It was her fourth sortie of the day, escorting a flight of Aleutian IL-2 ground-attack aircraft. As the Soviets were returning to their base near Orel, a pair of Bf 109 fighters dived on Litviak while she was attacking a large group of German bombers. Soviet pilot Ivan Borisenko recalled, Lily just didn't see the Messerschmitt 109s flying cover for the German bombers. A pair of them dived on her, and when she did see them, she turned to meet them. Then they all disappeared behind a cloud. Poroshenko, involved in the dogfight, saw her the last time through a gap in the clouds, her Yak-1 pouring smoke and pursued by as many as eight BF-109s. Later... Borisenko descended to see if he could find her, but no parachute could be seen and there was no explosion, and she never returned from the mission. Litviak was 21 years old. Yataka Budonova was the other ace, with a score of six enemy aircraft and a number of shared kills. She served with Litviak and had kills on bombers such as the Ju-88, as well as fighters, the BF-109 and Fokwolf 190 and BF-110, but the day she died she took on an impossible task. She spotted three Messerschmitts going on the attack against a group of bombers. Katya attacked and diverted the enemy. A desperate fight developed in the air, but Katia managed to pick up an enemy aircraft in her sights and riddled him with bullets. This was the fifth kill she had achieved personally. Katia's fighter rapidly soared upwards and swooped back down on a second enemy aircraft. She stitched it with bullets, and the second enemy, streaming black smoke, escaped to the west. But Katia's red-starred fighter had been hit. Tongues of flame were already licking at the wings. She managed to put out the fire and force-landed in no-man's land but by the time local farmers had come to pull her from the aircraft, she was already dead. As remarkable as these fighter pilots were, it was the Night Witches of the 558th Night Bomber Regiment, known later as the 46th Taman Guard Night Bomber Aviation Regiment, who gained the reputation for striking fear into the hearts of the Nazi soldiers. The aircraft that these women flew was the Polycup of PO2, an uncomplicated biplane used mainly as a trainer and agricultural crop sprayer, but could truly be classed as a general purpose machine. It was produced to replace the U1 trainer, itself a copy of the Avro 504. It normally flew around at a mere 60 knots, but in a dive it could reach a distinctly unimpressive 82 knots. However, its low speed and high manoeuvrability could give it a distinct advantage since attacking fighters could easily be made to overshoot. With a crew of two, its armament was a single .30 machine gun mounted in the rear cockpit, but it could carry a useful load of 650 kilograms – it's about 110 pounds – bombs. It fulfilled a myriad of military roles, such as liaison, medevac, and as a supply aircraft, particularly to the Soviet partisans behind the front lines, since it could operate from very tight spaces. However, its most famous role was as a night low-level bomber. Not only was it slow, it was vulnerable, and its wood and canvas construction meant that it was easily set on fire. Despite this, some 30,000 were built, making it the most produced biplane in history. Its engine, a Shvetsov M11D five-cylinder radial, which produced a mere 125 horsepower, had a most unusual noise, which led to the Wehrmacht troops to nickname it the sewing machine, whilst the Finnish troops called it the nerve saw. Apparently, during its low-altitude night bombing missions, it was a nerve racking noise to hear. For these night missions, a common tactic was for it to be throttled back, and with the wind whistling eerily, through the wire braces, it would sound like an unearthly harbinger of doom. Although the material effects of these night bombing runs would often be limited, the psychological effect was noticeable, as the surprise attacks kept troops awake at night and continually on their guard in case of another whispering attack. German soldiers likened the sound to broomsticks and it was they who named the pilots Night Witches. Due to the weight of the bombs and the low altitude of the flight, the pilots carried no parachutes. Instead, they took more bombs. One pilot explained, If we are shot down over enemy territory, then it's better to die than fall into the hands of the fascists. Although the aircraft were obsolete and slow, the pilots made daring use of their exceptional manoeuvrability. They had the advantage of having a maximum speed that was lower than the stalling speed of both the Messerschmitt Bf 109 and the Focke-Wulf 190. As a result, the German pilots found them very difficult to shoot down. So successful was their tactics that the Luftwaffe took the idea and set up their own harassment combat squadrons on the Eastern Front using obsolete 1930-era open-cockpit biplanes such as the Gotha G0145. The Night Witch's usual tactic involved flying only a few metres above the ground, climbing for the final approach, throttling back the engine, and making a gliding bombing run, leaving the targeted troops with only the eerie noise of the wings' bracing wires as an indication of the impending attack. So loathed were they that any German pilot who downed a witch was automatically awarded an Iron Cross. The Soviet pilot's skills were even more remarkable, considering the limited technology the women had at their disposal. The witches, they took the German epitaph as a badge of honour, flew only in the dark. They had no radar to navigate their paths through the night skies, only maps and compasses. If hit by tracer bullets, their craft would ignite like the paper planes they resembled, which was no small concern. Almost every time, one recalled, we had to sail through a wall of enemy fire." Their missions were dangerous and incredibly tiring. Each night, in general, 40 planes, each crewed by two women, a pilot and a navigator, would fly eight or more missions, with some pilots amassing up to 18 in a single night. These were night maximum, when we were in the air for eight or nine hours in a row, one girl described. After three or four flights the eyes closed by themselves. While the navigator went to the KP to report on the flight, the female pilot slept in the cockpit for a few minutes, while the armourers hung bombs and the mechanics filled the plane with gasoline and oil. The navigator would return and the female pilot woke up. It was a tremendous strain of physical and mental strength. And when dawn came, we could barely move our legs or go to the dining room, hoping to have breakfast and sleep as soon as possible. At breakfast we were given some wine, which was supposed to help the pilots sleep after the combat work. But still, the dreams were disturbing. We dreamed of searchlights and anti-aircraft guns. Some had persistent insomnia. The women's uniforms were hand-me-downs from male pilots, and their planes had open cockpits, leaving the women's faces to freeze in the chilly night air. When the wind was strong, it would toss the plane, they said. In winter, when you'd look out to see your target better, you got frostbite. Our feet froze in our boots, but we carried on flying. Another pilot described her task thus. Bombing from an aircraft is difficult, and bombardment with a PO two is doubly difficult. We must be able to accurately pave the way to the goal to find it without reference points, without illuminating lights, often cleverly disguised. And here comes to the fore the skill of the navigator. You can, of course, illuminate the target with SABS, but that will catch fire at a distance of three or 400 metres from the ground and will hang on parachutes for a long time. But with heavy clouds, thick haze, smoke screens set by the enemy to hide the object, SABS are useless. It takes experience to discover the target and hit it. We had to drop bombs of different weight and size, 25, 50, 100 kilogram, fragmentation, high-explosive, thermite, self-igniting liquid and the small bombs, including anti-tank grenades, which we took in the cabin itself. But their missions were having an effect. In Hitler's Luftwaffe, the possibility of the PO2 were scornfully evaluated. In the first year of the war, the Germans laughed, calling it a miracle of technology and jesting that it was Russian plywood. But as soon as the female regiments began to act at the front, the term Russian Mosquito Aviation began to appear in the enemy's headquarters documents. Captured soldiers of the Wehrmacht revealed, "'There is no life from the PO2 plane,' The stoves and fires cannot be fired. The PO2 plane sees them and throws bombs there. It finds us everywhere. We have to sit in trenches all night so as not to have group losses. In other situations, Russian plywood was completely indispensable. In the Caucasus, when German tanks crawled into the gorges at night, attack aircraft could not reach them. The Night Witches aircraft, equipped with captured incendiary bombs, they could do it. They first attacked the head tank of the Column, then the closing one, then all the others. The Night Witches flew over 23,000 sorties, dropping over 3,000 tons of bombs and many thousand incendiary shells during the war. And became one of the most highly decorated female units of the Soviet Air Force. Many pilots flew over 800 missions, and by the end of the war, 23 pilots had been awarded the Hero of the Soviet Union, the highest honor of the Soviet Union. One general, male, initially complained about being sent a bunch of girlies instead of soldiers, but the women in their flimsy little crop dusters and their ill-fitting uniforms soon proved him wrong. And they did all that whilst decorating their planes with flowers and using their wax navigation pencils as lipstick. My thanks to Heather Allen for the idea for this plane tale and Evgeny Avramenko for his research that helped a great deal. If you enjoyed this story, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.